Welcome to the Aeon Pensions Podcast. This week we welcome back Sophia Singleton and meet Christopher Inman as we talk about the investment section of the Defined Contribution Pension Scheme Survey, Navigating the Future. Looking closely at the investment experience for members, how the investment engine works and why it is so important, and the default investment strategy. To get your own copy of the research report findings, head over to the Aon UK website and navigate to the DC section. You can also listen to the previous episodes and download further DC research. And now, time for the interview. Welcome back to the Aon Hewitt Pensions podcast. I'm here with Sophia and Chris. Uh, welcome both. So Sophia, if you could just recap a little bit uh, for, for all the listeners out there on your role here at Aon Hewitt. Thank you, Stuart. Yes, I head our DC consulting team at Aon Hewitt, um, advising a range of trustee and corporate clients, um, really trying to help them get the most out of their DC schemes. And Chris? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. So I'm an investment principal and I lead the DC Investment Advisory Service. Um, my main role is really translating the best investment ideas out there into implementable strategies to improve member outcomes. Brilliant. And today we're, we're going to be discussing uh, Chapter 3 from the survey. Uh, which is focused on investments. Uh, I really wanted to kick off uh, with you, Chris. In the research, you talk about powering the investment engine. Why is that so important? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. So, so better member outcomes are, are really becoming an increasingly important focus for schemes. And the investment returns we achieve for members is such a critical part of that. Uh, in the past, we've seen that investment strategies for DC often languish at the end of trustee agendas. But what we're seeing now is that those default strategies are really getting the attention they deserve with most of the schemes we surveyed having reviewed their investment strategies in the past three years. Do you think trustees um, understand some of these uh, investment strategies? That's part of our job. It, it, is a, it is a difficult one. It's something we struggle with, but that's part of the education piece, and that's really part of my role as well in terms of there's not too many new investment strategies under the sun. There's lots of different ways to package them up. And lots of people try and put them in uh, different means. But, yeah, our part is to educate and to use those strategies that really do improve member outcomes. And do you think trustees are starting to uh, think more about DC? Whereas I suppose probably yeah, a definitely. long time ago, DB was their core focus and you yeah, know, they may definitely. not even really be in the DC scheme. Definitely, definitely. And as we said, it's really coming up the agenda uh, and trustee meetings. And we're even getting and the biggest schemes that we advise a day on DC a quarter, which is fantastic. Is it just trustees that are in the in the mix? Did you, are you starting to see HR directors and FDs take more of an interest? Uh, we are, but there's a slightly different focus from the two. Okay. And Sophia, when it comes to positively affecting the investment experience of members, should schemes be focusing on turning members into their own chief investment officers in order to make their own investment choices? Or should they focus on ensuring the default is appropriate for the majority of members and providing simple choices around it? I think this is a really interesting question, Stuart, for DC um, schemes because it comes to a lot of crux of DC strategy and design. In the past, the emphasis has been on engaging members in their investment decisions, trying to make them decide what investments to, to take. Um, that hasn't always worked, probably hasn't worked at all, to be honest. And our research shows that on average, about 85% of scheme members use the default investment option. 
Now, that's not a bad thing. And I think we need to embrace that because what we've seen, particularly, I think, in you in the United States, where we've got a lot of data around this, is that members who make their own investments do about 3% per annum worse than members who um, go into a managed account or, a, you know, a default type fund. So really, you know, members defaulting is good. Um, the, the onus on trustees and employers is to make sure that their default works for the majority of their members. Yeah, that's a, that's a really key point, Sophia. And, and the extent to which trustees and schemes really want to determine the investment strategy of uh, their schemes or educate members to make their own decisions will really be based on their individual membership profile. Um, a lot of my clients are investment banks and we often see that a lot of their members don't want that investment decision taken out of their hands, so it really is dependent on them. So what does the default investment strategy currently target? Yeah, that, that's another good question. And, and what we found uh, from our survey is that the favourite currently is annuity and cash, with over 40% uh, saying that they still target that as their default strategy which for us was a bit of a surprising finding given the new world of pension freedoms that we're in. So our 2016 DC member survey showed that uh, approximately 28% of members were, were still planning on purchasing an annuity. Um, but the current experience taken out from the FCA Retirement Outcomes Review is that twice as many members are actually staying invested or going into drawdown as we call it, um, as opposed to purchasing an annuity at the point of retirement. And that's a, that's a really interesting finding for us in that we're seeing that disconnect in terms of how members are actually taking the retirement savings and that focus on purchasing annuity of the default strategies that I said. So for us, it's all about understanding what your members are doing, what their objectives are, and then tailoring that investment strategy to meet those needs. And given my investment background, I want, I want to get a little bit granular <laughs> for a second here. So when we're looking at those retirement outcomes and those objectives, I think it's really important to look under the bonnet of your lifestyle strategy to really understand what you're investing in. Are they going to achieve the objectives of your members and are they mitigating the risks that they're exposed to? So working with clients, we've generally found three things when we lift the lid on their lifestyle strategies. Uh, so the first is for, for the younger members where we have a lot of equity exposure, we generally find that's fairly undiversified. And when I say undiversified, I mean by geography. So we generally find an overweight to UK equities there. Okay. I also mean by style. So this is mainly using market capitalization indices instead of alternative indexation and also on return driver. When we go into the mid-career, and I think a lot of trustees have struggled with this, particularly since 2008, the heavy reliance on diversified growth funds for those mid-career members. And what we find is that they are paying relatively high fees, but matching the returns of equities. So that reliance on DGFs hasn't necessarily mitigated the risks members are exposed to, nor achieved the returns that we expect. And the final piece, and again, it's an important one for strategies that focus on annuity at retirement or annuity purchase, uh, is the heavy reliance on fixed income assets, and that's local fixed income like gilts and inflation-linked gilts. And why is that a problem? If we're not expecting members to actually purchase an annuity and we're using those assets as safe havens or at de-risking, um, that isn't necessarily going to achieve that because we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months capital losses of up to 10% in fixed income markets. So if we're trying to achieve real returns without capital losses, those fixed income investments are actually quite risky. 
Just going back to your um, point about the uh, and the survey, forty percent mm. looking at annuity and cash. Do you think that might have something to do with potentially the makeup of some of the trustee boards that you know perhaps they're a bit more risk averse at that stage in their their own journey? Yeah, indeed, it, it could very well be that, and they still maybe have that DB mindset in terms of that regular income. So taking that um, uncertainty out. But given current pricings and given the um, relative returns of fixed income, particularly in the UK going forward, that's not a riskless investment. So you rightly say people think of this as a safe haven or a de-risk asset, de-risked asset uh, but it's really not. In the new world of pension freedoms where we're trying to achieve real returns, stable income and lower capital losses, they are actually quite a risky investment. I think... Um some trustees and schemes are sort of saying, well, we don't really know how what our members are going to do. We can't make that decision yet, so let's just stay where we are for now. Um, I think what we're beginning to see is the evidence that more people are wanting to stay invested and go into a drawdown sort of solution. So we're seeing twice as those people who go for a regular income rather than those who've taken cash twice as many have gone into drawdown than have actually bought annuity at retirement. Right, okay. So drawdown is definitely gaining traction. So with the, when the default can't match the objectives of all members, but how much investment choice should be offered? Do you, I mean, should there be multiple um, default funds depending on what stage you're at? So I think you can only have one default option, but you can give members choices around that option. Um, and what research generally shows is you need to get a good balance in the amount of choice you give to members. So if you give members too much choice, it can be confusing and lead to disengagement. Whilst if you give too little choice, then you're not giving members really access to the range of assets that they might want. Um, what we found surprising in our research, I think, is that a quarter of schemes offer over 20 sort of self-select funds within their range. Um, this tends to be the smaller schemes um, and GPPs, both of which tend to offer quite a large number of choices. But I think, importantly, without necessarily providing the necessary support for members to make an informed choice about all those different investment options. Encouragingly, though, the average, on average, schemes seem to offer between 6 and 14 different fund choices. And we think that's sensible. We actually think somewhere between 10 and 12 fund choices gives a good balance for most memberships. But it does vary, um, and schemes should review the funds that they're offering to ensure that they are suitable for their membership. And I think, importantly, that they're communicated in a straightforward way and they offer each of those fund options individually offer good value for money. So do you, do you think, Sophia, it's just the case that a lot of the smaller schemes are, are trying to compensate and provide a solution for everybody that perhaps potentially doesn't actually give anybody a real solution? Yeah, I think I think there's two factors here. One is trying to cater for everyone, and maybe people have asked for different options in the past and they keep adding them in. The other one might be a fear of making a change. So they might have historically had a large number yeah. of funds for whatever reason and to consolidate those funds into a smaller range mm. will mean actually moving people's money from one place to the other. And that feels you know, uncomfortable I think sometimes for, for, for trustees. But actually it might be 
the right thing to do. So I would suggest, you know, that people just think quite hard about whether actually it would be better to make a change rather than avoid a change. Yeah, especially with market conditions and, you know, things yeah. moving at the rate that they're moving, you know, perhaps having some smaller pool of funds mm. that are more uh, managed more frequently would be much mm. better. Yes, yeah, so a well-managed, well-governed mm. set of funds, I think, is much more powerful and much better for the membership than a huge sort of open supermarket of funds. So let's, let's move on to the often overlooked question. With increased flex flexibility in retirement, have schemes put in place preferred providers for the members? Yeah, this was, a, again, another surprising finding from our survey that we found that two-thirds of schemes don't actually have a preferred drawdown option in place. Uh, and through, again, the FCA research showed that there's significant inertia amongst members that don't take advice, with 94% staying with the same provider for drawdown as in accumulation. So this is, this is a word of caution, I suppose, for, for schemes in that even if you don't have a preferred provider in place, your members may assume that the provider that they have in the accumulation stage is good enough for the decumulation stage and stay there. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I said before, you know, Drawdown is already showing, you know, popularity. It's getting popular. And I think that is going to continue um, as members appreciate flexibility they, they get in retirement. Mm. So putting in place a preferred solution, ideally that links your pre-retirement investment strategies to your post-retirement strategy, um, but also importantly offers good support and advice to members at retirement and through retirement is essential to really help members achieve good outcomes. Mm. I know we're going to touch on engagement in a, in a slightly later episode, but do you think this is probably one of the areas where you know, the, the management structure of that DC scheme needs to work that little bit harder for education, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe getting the HR involved a bit earlier to start explaining, you know, what, what that end journey looks like. And Yeah, the d decision point at retirement is one of the most crucial ones and it could, where it could go all like, horrifically wrong for members. And if you look out into the open market at the moment, it really is a very confusing place. There's a whole range of options there that people just won't be able to understand, that will charge mm. high charges, etc. So um, getting that support structure and communication mm. right at that point in retirement and helping members make really sensible decisions is, is crucial. And I think putting in place a preferred provider mm. is a key part of that. That's right. In terms of, again, when we're looking at it from the investment perspective, a lot of this sounds difficult and yeah. it might be a little bit too far. But for me, it's all about going back to the first principles in terms of what are we trying to achieve, understanding your members' objectives and then putting in place investment strategies that mitigate those risks and achieve those outcomes. Um, so as Sophia said, and we can use it from the engagement perspective, that linking that pre-retirement element to the post-retirement is absolutely key for me from that investment side of things. So, I mean, this is a good, good place for us to sort of discuss the, the key takeaways. So what, what do you actually think schemes should be doing? If we can start with you, Chris. Yeah, so I've got four key takeaways. Uh, so the first is, is to really have a look and, and to understand what your members are currently doing at retirement and then making sure your investment strategies align with that. Um, when we're thinking about the investment strategies, as I said, we, we want to make sure that they um, incorporate the most cost-efficient and the best investment ideas. 
So this isn't necessarily about being cheap and cheerful, moving away from active management. It's about spending your fee budget wisely. Uh, the third one for us, and again, comes back to the investment strategy, is that to help members engage with their plan, we think you can do that a little bit more in terms of offering simple investment strategies and simple communication. So as you said before, not necessarily turning members into their own CIOs, but giving the information they need and the points that they can engage with. And, and the final point is what we just discussed in terms of if we want to future-proof pension plans, we really need to ensure that the drawdown and the process of going into retirement is supported. You got anything to add to that, Sophia? Yeah, I think my, my whole observation around the investment opportunity for DC schemes is it is much more involved now than it has been in over the last decade or so. So, so what we've seen from my research is some really good moves forward from schemes, but we're not there yet, and actually, I don't think you know we'll ever be there. This is a constantly evolving market, and there's new solutions coming to market. So trustees need to stay on top of those solutions and work out how and when to adopt different tool, tools into their strategies. And just, just finally, I mean, should trustees um, have some more training when it comes to DC? I mean, I don't think there can ever be enough training, mm. but do you think? it should be a lot more um, prominent on the agenda, on, on that, board, that, that trustee um, board meeting agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the things that we're sort of, you know, bringing to our, our clients at the moment and sort of primarily start out as training and then they can work out whether mm. to build it into their strategies. But things like how to use factor investing within DC schemes, um, ESG, so environmental, social and governance issues, that's becoming really, really prominent within the DC uh, space and how, how do they you know, manage that within their strategies. I'm sure you've got a, f a few others, Chris, yeah, do you mean? There's, yeah, given my accent, the, the access to a liquid investment strategy, so things like private equity, real estate infrastructure, is high on the agenda. We're not quite there uh, due to many factors and operational reasons. But again, it's something we can do the training, we can do the education, everyone can gain comfort. And then when the investment strategies come to market, we can put them in place. And I think an important one, again, when we talk about investment strategies, we also we often talk about the implementation and the objectives. It's key to get the monitoring right as well. These aren't set and forget strategies. The market is continually evolving. Your membership profile is going to evolve as the years pass. Yeah. So monitoring the investment strategies to ensure we're achieving the right objectives and then making those changes as and when appropriate. Brilliant. Well, thanks both for taking time out today to talk to us, and we look forward to speaking to you both on the next one. Thank you. Thanks, Gerald. Total contribution, and let people opt back down if they want to, okay. but actually relying on that inertia, in the case of, well, one particular case I've seen, I think about 70, 75% of people remained at that top level, which was, you know, incredible amount. If, if it was the other way around, we wouldn't expect to see anywhere near that level of people choose to yeah. to contribute that much. And that's where that dialogue between the, the scheme and the, and the employer is so important in that that's a, that's a big commitment from, mm. the, from the employer in terms of funding at that higher default level of contribution. And was there anything in the survey that um, surprised you both? I think personally I was surprised by the number of people running schemes who didn't actually know what members were going to get. You know, that, <laughs> that was a big shock because you kind of think that these people are responsible the fingers um, on the pulse yeah, yeah. indeed right. although I, I believe it was lower than, than the last survey a couple of years ago so at least we're moving in the right direction yeah. <laughs> and I guess for, for me it was it was less of a surprise but more of a, a concern that, uh, that that such a large number of people who are getting into their 30s are still 
uh, only paying um, a very low level of, of contribution to pensions. And one would have thought that at some point during the 30s, one would, one would have uh, some additional um, concerns about the long-term nature of the investment and actually putting a bit more aside. So I think that's something that I would expect and hope to see improving as the new, uh, the new levels of contribution come into, into play. We'll, we'll watch out for that one next year. Indeed we will. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank Likewise, you. Likewise, thank you. Make sure you subscribe to catch the next instalment of the Aon Hewitt Pensions Podcast. If you'd like to view a copy of the DC survey report and have a look at the facts and figures John and Stephen have been discussing with me today, simply visit the Aon UK website and head over to the Defined Contribution section. You'll be able to download your copy of the report there.